Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray over these words. God, thank you so much for allowing us to um, read these words together this morning, to study them. I pray that you will speak to our hearts and that you will lead us to trust you and to trust what you say. I pray that you will help us to uh, see our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, see the people that are part of this fellowship as as family. Uh, We share, we have in common uh, faith in you and a salvation that only you could provide. We see life through a lens that most people in the world can't see. We see you, we see hope, we see eternity, we see forgiveness, we see grace, we see mercy. And because of that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to view each other through that same grace and mercy and love that you have poured out in us and extended to us. I pray that you will help us to remember that the end is near and that you would use that knowledge to comfort our hearts and you would use that knowledge to to cause us to be intentional about the life that we have left to live. Please take these words and speak to our hearts with them. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a few things. We're going to kind of walk through these uh, section by section. There's a couple of these verses towards the end that I'm going to save for next week just because there's a lot packed in here, and it's going to take a lot of time to un- kind of explain it all and kind of walk through that. There's some cross-references, a lot of... A lot of other verses in the Bible that I wanted to read to go along with it. So because of that, I'm going to divide this up into about two parts. But it really all goes together. Verses 7 through 11 is really one thought. And he begins by saying the end of all things is near. And he really wants us to, this is kind of a transition after he's encouraged the church to arm themselves with the same purpose as Jesus. And what was the same purpose of Jesus? Jesus' purpose was to bring us to God. That was the purpose of Jesus Christ. He came, he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead so that we could be made right with our Father in heaven who created us. We sinned against God. We were separated from God because of our sin. And uh, we were meant to be in relationship with God. And we have been, as a result of our sin, living in darkness. But Jesus came to bring us to light. Jesus came to restore that relationship with our Creator, with our Father. And he made that possible through his death and resurrection. And that's what we celebrate. We call that the good news. We call that, that, that word gospel means good news. That's the story of Jesus Christ. So if before we go too much further 
this is a message that is specifically directed towards Christians, towards believers, towards people that gather together as believers. We're called the church. Okay, but before we go too much further, I just want to encourage you, if you're all wrestling with your relationship with God, with salvation, that the first thing that needs to be settled is whether or not you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. That's where you begin. Do you believe that Jesus Christ did all that he said he did and will do all that he says he will do and will forgive you of all of your sins? Cry out to him for salvation and scripture says you will be saved. So if, you, if, if that's where you're at this morning, then that might be all you need to pray about for the rest of this sermon. But as we move forward, Peter's encouraged the church, we are to arm ourselves with that gospel. That it is part of our mission now to lead people to Jesus who will make them right with God. We are to make that our mission in life, to arm ourselves with this gospel, to ready ourselves with the good news of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. In our relationship with the church, we are to remember that the end is near. And I think it's kind of an important principle to remember, especially when we relate to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, And he kind of points out a few reasons why. Uh, it's important to remember that the end is near. Now, first of all, uh, sometimes I think that if we think we will live a long life, if we think that we have a whole lot more life to live, then that can sometimes cause us to be careless with life or even slothful about the things that need to be done. It causes us to kind of sit back and relax as if we have all the time in the world. And I think Peter's encouraging us as believers to remember that there is an urgency that we need to keep in mind, that there is a day when God is coming back. There is a day when this world will come to an end. There is a judgment day and there is a day um, that's coming and it is near. And he's saying we need to remember that because we need to keep ourselves in a position of urgency, not in a position of laziness, just because we rejoice in the riches of our salvation and the grace of God and the mercy of God on a daily basis. It could be really easy for us to sit back and say, well, everything's taken care of. I'm good. So I'm just going to chill and let the world do what the world's going to do. And the Lord has called us as a church as brothers and sisters of Christ, to be about something that is more important than just our personal pleasures. Mm -hmm. And so he is reminding us that the age is, the end of the age is near. So life is short. He's also kind of encouraging us to remember that we ought not become entangled with some of the difficulties that uh, tend to ensnare our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is difficult to be in relationship with human beings. It's always hard because even you start out being interested in people, liking people. You find that you have certain things in common. You can rejoice in one another and things are great for a little while. But then as you get to know each other and you begin, you begin to settle into those relationships, you start noticing the things about each other that drive you nuts. The things that you disagree with, the things that you don't like, the things that they don't like about you, and you start getting defensive, sometimes judgmental, and all those kind of things begin to erode the relationships that we have. I think he's telling us that the age, the end of the age is near, life is short, don't waste it on bitterness, anger, strife, hatred, all of those kinds of things. 
Now also this, this idea of the age, um, this is a specific age of time that we are living in that will come to an end. Uh, we know that there's a day that's coming where we will be, uh, we will be made new again. We will be completely restored to a, to a new body and a new life that is not bound by the burdens of the sins of this flesh. This life that we live is kind of a life of suffering. It's a life of turmoil. It's a life of battle. It's a difficult life. We struggle with sins. Even as believers, as Christians, there's a sense of duality that we live in in this age of time. And I've kind of said it a few times, uh, and I think it's probably true. I think all Christians are bipolar to some extent um, because we, have, we were born in the flesh. We are sinful in the flesh, but the Lord has brought our spirits to life. Our hearts agree with the things of God, with the law of God, with the righteousness of Christ. We want to do the will of God. We love God, but yet at the same time, our flesh wants the sinful things that, we, um, that we've been born in. And we continue to battle with that, and we will till the day that we die or until God comes back. So this age that we live in is going to be a life of turmoil. And this statement, the end of the age of near, is to prompt us towards sobriety, towards alertness, towards a life of intentionality. And I believe it's also supposed to give us a little bit of peace. Because sometimes there's a great deal of consolation that comes when we're dealing with some of the most difficult things that we could bear. The Lord reminds us the end is near. And there's comfort in that. I think sometimes you think, well, if the end is near, that's kind of, that causes some anxiety, causes a little fear. Like, is there something I can do about this? Can I prolong this? Can I make life last a little bit longer? You know, but sometimes there's just comfort in knowing that God's going to call a stop to this whole thing at some point. And that's good. There are some things that I enjoy that fill me with so much joy. Some things about this life fill me with so much joy. I would wish that this life would go on forever, that I could enjoy those things. But there are some things about this life that are so difficult that it is an incredible comfort to know that there's a day when that will come to an end. And there's a day when all that will be left is joy. All that will be left is joy. The duality will be gone. We will be of single mind. We will be wholeheartedly in love with the holiness of God and there will be no semblance of sin left in our soul and in our new body. It will be a beautiful place to be. So God says the end of the age is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So that's, there's that call to alertness, to focus, to being awake. And what that means, sound judgment means to be reasonable of sound mind or sensible. Now basically, he's calling us to, um, to, to stay in such a state of mind that we are reasonably thinking about life, reasonably thinking about the people around us, of sound mind, meaning that we're not caught up, our mind isn't consumed with a whole bunch of things that don't matter, but we are focused on the things that matter most in life, and we are sensible about it. And he partners that with this idea of being sober in spirit. And that sobriety that he's talking about is to have a spirit of self-control. 
It's a controlled spirit, a mind and a heart and a spirit that is not out of control and controlled by all the substances and all the entertainments and all the vain things of this world. Those aren't the things that are driving us day to day and controlling our choices. Instead, our choices and our behaviors are being controlled by our heart and by the will of God. And so he's telling us to be alert and to be sober-minded, to use sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. 1 Peter 5, 8 gives us a little bit of a glimpse of this. Peter continues to talk, and we'll come to this as we preach through the book or through this letter, but he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. So there he's talking about sobriety and alertness again. Being awake, not allowing yourself to be asleep to the things that are important. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. This alertness brings with it this idea that we are susceptible to temptation. We are susceptible to being led astray. We are susceptible to being deceived by false teachings and by all kinds of things that could lead us away from the will of God. And so he's telling us to stay awake because we are a weak kind of people. Even though we are strong in the spirit and the spirit of God dwells within us, Christ dwells within us, we still live in a weak flesh. And we, if we are not careful, will forget the fact that we are easily led into sin. And we can sometimes become prideful and maybe even boastful about the fact that we may think that we've kind of got all that whipped or taken care of. But the fact is, I think most of us know in the deepest parts of our hearts, there are areas of our lives where we are extremely weak and sinful. And it's good for us to remember that and remember that we desperately need the presence of God and we need to be be on guard against the potential of wandering back into sin. And so then he tells us that we are to, um, to remember that this, sober, this sobriety and this alertness is for the purpose of being um, vigilant in prayer, continuing in a prayer, a life of prayer. And I think when I read about this and when I studied this, it seems like the two work with each other. You almost can't have one without the other. You can't pray consistently without being alert to the things that matter most. And you can't pray um, and you can't be alert without prayer. You need prayer in order to help you see the world the way we need to see it. We have to stay in a state of mind where we are in constant communication with God because as we abide with Christ, he abides with us. And that's when the spirit produces fruit in our lives in John chapter uh, that was out of escape my mind. The um, the f- when abiding in Christ, 15. John fifteen. Thank you, John chapter fifteen. When we abide in Christ, as we abide in Christ, then the fruits will come to bear on that tree. Uh, we are, are we are rooted in Christ, and we want the fruits of the Spirit to be born out of our lives. But that involves an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think we can neglect that at times and we can neglect prayer. And as a result, we begin to see some of those fruits begin to disappear or even begin to rot on the tree. And we need those things to be revived. And that comes through a, an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think Peter's encouraging you and I to remember that the end is near. We need to make sure that we are alert. We need to make sure that we're sober and we need to make sure that we're praying not only for our 
ourselves, but also for one another. Paul shared this with the church in his letter in Ephesians chapter 6, when he shared about the armor of God, and he told us to put on the armor of God. He told us all these things that we actually do have. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have the righteousness of Christ. It's our breastplate. We have been saved by the power of God. We have, um, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But he tells us, a lot of times people leave this out of the armor of God. But in verse 18, he says this, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. He's encouraging us in our battle to stand firm in this world. As we stand firm, as we take up the full armor of God so that we can resist the world forces and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and all the temptations as we're staying alert, we need to be alert in prayer. We need to be alert in prayer. So it's not just simply a discipline of doing good things and not doing bad things. Although it's good to discipline yourself to not do bad things. It's good to discipline yourself to put sin away. It's good to discipline yourself to do the will of God and obey the laws of God. But being alert in prayer is specifically important for believers and for the church. And when Paul uses this, he says that prayer and petition specifically is to be done at all times and for all the saints. He's calling us to pray for one another. And I believe Peter's echoing this, or either Peter's echoing this, or Paul's echoing Peter, we don't really know. But, um, or they're just both individually hearing from the Spirit of God, which is probably most likely the truth. Um, but we know God wrote this, so that's why there's commonalities between all these letters. So as God is encouraging us to hear these things, he's saying the end is near. Be alert, praying for one another. I think sometimes as much as in the same way that sleep makes the body, too much sleep can make the body weak and kind of unfit for work. I don't know if you've experienced that before, but I have at times where I've slept too long or, and then it's just hard to get started again. It's hard to get out there and really get working again. And it, you have to kind of retrain your muscles to do what they're supposed to do. We kind of all experience that after a, a bad sickness. When you've been down, you've had to lay in bed for three days. And then you're just wiped out and you're sore and you, you're weak. And it's not because you're sick anymore. It's just because you've been laying around. I think sometimes it's the same way spiritually. I think oftentimes in Scripture, um, this alertness that God calls us to is oftentimes partnered with this idea of being awake. Because he knows that we know what it means to sleep too long. And what it means to be lazy and to be slothful. And he's saying that one, one, when we get caught up with the vain cares and excess pursuits of pleasure that tends to inebriate the mind it tends to kind of make us kind of make us drunk to the things that uh, that matter the most in the world the kingdom purposes that God has called us to this the arming ourselves with the gospel purpose of Jesus Christ we t tend to forget that we tend to get lazy about it we tend to get lazy about our sins and we get lazy about the things that God calls us to we get lazy about caring for one another and praying for one another and he's calling us to remember that we need to be alert and then he says verse 8 above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, he's, Peter's already told us a little bit about love. He kind of keeps bringing this up 
about how we're supposed to love one another. In chapter 1, verse 22, he said, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Meaning that since we have indeed been saved and our hearts have been changed and we have been purified, the Lord has changed us and in, in desires to see a natural outflow of that is the love of God or the love of others. And so he tells us to fervently love one another from the heart. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, to sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So he tells us to love one another fervently. To, he tells us to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, making sure that we're not returning evil for evil. Now that word fervent means uh, it's simply an earnest love. It's, it means honest. It's an honest love. So we're not telling people that we love them while at the same time knowing that we don't love them. So we, we love people and we honestly love people. It, it's a word that brings with it a consistency. To fervently love somebody is to consistently love them, to constantly love somebody. So he's calling us to consistently, constantly, honestly love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that isn't always easy. That's why we're constantly told in Scripture to do it. I think sometimes um, that's one of the, the, the most difficult things about being a body of Christ. One of, the, um, one of the things that divides bodies of Christ the most is uh, the erosion of love towards one another because of various things that might take place, disagreements, gossip, slander, um, and all these kinds of things. Now, the fact is we are going to disagree, and that's okay. And I think that's I think sometimes, you know, just like with any relationship, with a marriage relationship or anything, you love each other, but you know that sometimes the disagreement, you're afraid that that's going to erode your love, so you just don't talk about it. But what does that happen? It creates bitterness in your heart because in, the truth is you can't actually let it go. You want to let it go. You say you let it go, but you didn't actually let it go. And then, a, you know, a few months later, six months later, after like 10 more things have been added to that, you finally feel like you've had enough, and then you decide to have the conversation, and then you're blowing up about 10 huge things instead of one thing, right? I don't, am I just talking about me? That, that's what I do, all right? So I have to work on that, you know? But, um, but, that's, but the Lord, I think, is telling us that uh, we have a susceptibility to allowing love to be eroded because we, we don't want to um, address the issues, Sometimes it's okay for us to disagree with one another. We just have to learn how to disagree peaceably. And we have to learn how to, to trust that everyone is in the hands of God. You are all God's sheep. So if you disagree with me strongly today, that's okay. Because I trust that God has your soul in his hand. And I'm praying and trusting that the Lord will lead you in his way. And he will. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to tell you what the Lord's led me to say. And then I'm going to do my best to do it in love. And I think that's how we, um, one of the ways that we can continue to stay unified as we treat one another in that kind of love. Um, Jesus commanded love in John chapter 13. We know this passage fairly well. John chapter 13, verse 34. Uh, this is what Jesus said. 
A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, I want you to love one another, and I want you, and, and I want you to love one another as I've loved you. And the way that I've loved you, I want you to love other people. He kind of, as many ways as I can say this, I'm going to say it the same way three times backwards. And, and that's kind of how he says it. And then he says this, as I've loved you, you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It becomes an evidence of the Spirit of God within us if we can love each other even through the difficulties. People begin to see that the Spirit of God is with us. It's not just a group of people that like each other because we do cool things. Mm -hmm. We're a group of people that are bound together by the Spirit of God. And that's what's become evident about us. And I think, you know, oftentimes we don't see that. And I think one of the biggest gripes about people of the church is that the church sometimes has a reputation for not being loving. You know, friendship Baptist churches aren't always friendly. Loving Baptist churches aren't always lovey. You know, and this is why God's calling us to pay attention because these things can easily be eroded. As soon as we decide to change the floor to carpet, or uh, paint the walls green or something that we find to be absurd, but somebody else thinks is perfectly fine. All right, those kinds of things are petty, and we can allow them to divide us. Also, theological matters that really do matter, and we should work out, we need to discuss, and we are going to disagree on, but we ought not let those divide us um, either. Now, uh, another passage of Scripture that I think is really interesting to see is in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, because this is actually kind of a quote, even though it's not exactly quoted. It's kind of a quote from Proverbs uh, chapter 10, um, verse 12. This is, what, um, this is what it says. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. And here Peter says... Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Mm -hmm. Now, so he's contrasting here uh, uh, love and hatred, but what he's really trying to bring into this picture is the idea of forgiveness. That forgiveness is something that becomes a pattern in our love for one another. Forgiveness is how we extend love to one another, even as we disagree or even as we sin against each other and genuinely do harmful things to each other. We will sin against each other, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but love covers a multitude of sins. And I believe he's, he's borrowing from that, that, uh, that proverb about hatred, and he's contrasting it, saying that hatred is the thing that will cause division among us, but love is the thing that is going to cause unity among us. And because we love one another, we're naturally going to forgive each other, and that's going to cover a multitude of sins. Now, um, something interesting to recognize here is that uh, in partnership with this phrase, the end of all things is near, is a reminder that God is coming and he's given us enough love in our hearts through the presence of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God to forgive people until Jesus comes back. You remember uh, the story where Peter asks Jesus 
how many times he ought to forgive. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Um, wait a minute, I don't think that's, I'm not in the right spot. Here we are, 18, verse 21. says this, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is kind of a, he's, he's not, you could multiply that and then you could set a limit if you want, but Jesus is not literally saying that, what is 70, 70 times seven? I don't know, I can't remember. Say that again? 490, thank you. So we could draw a line at 490, say, you know what, 491, I'm out, all right? But I, think, I believe that Jesus is specifically encouraging us to see well beyond all of that. That it is, it is recognizing that because of the presence of God within us, because of the Spirit of God within us, because of the love of Jesus Christ that's been poured on on our behalf, we have enough love within us to forgive people until Jesus comes back. That's the extent of it. And if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 18, it says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. So someone owed a debt, but he couldn't pay. So the, the man who, um, who was owed demanded that he be arrested and uh, his wife and children um, be sold into slavery until this debt was paid off. Um, the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. The man pled for salvation and then he was forgiven and the debt was, um, the debt was forgiven. Um, so this is, this is Jesus giving us an illustration of what it looks like for us to owe God a debt that we cannot pay with by, because of the sins that we've committed against God, and then us falling on our faces, begging for salvation, not having anything to pay, anything of our own that we could possibly use to pay off our debt, and God showing compassion towards us, mercy towards us, and forgiving us our debt by the death of His only Son, Jesus Christ. And so we are forgiven a great debt. And He's encouraging you and I to see others through that same lens. And what's wonderful about this story is he doesn't stop there. He keeps on going and he says, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves. And I think we could probably translate that to us going out and finding one of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or somebody else in this world that has offended us, that has sinned against us, that we might consider to owe us a great debt because they have harmed us in some way. And he says, so he, he, the, the fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? So when Peter says, how often should I forgive? Jesus says, you should you 
forgive others as much as I have forgiven you? And the answer to that is an obvious yes. We should forgive others as much as Christ has forgiven us. And when we recognize that we've been forgiven of a great debt, then we should see others the same way. And so then he says, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers and sh- until he should repay all that he was that was owed. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And there's that fervent love. It's got to come from the heart. It has to be honest. This forgiveness that we extend until Jesus comes back. And then Peter says this, um, above all, keep fervent in your love. And that above all means that this is highly important. This is, this is really important for you to hold on to. And then he gets to verse 9 and he says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Uh, this is basically putting action to your words of love. It is a show of love towards one another. It is where your love can actually be seen. You're not only forgiving someone from the heart, but you're expressing it, and then you're showing kindness, and you're showing hospitality towards the people around you. Now, hospitality in general, it basically means it's a practical kindness of sharing with others. It's it's a practical way of helping other people or showing kindness to other people by sharing what you have with other people. Um, Some ways... uh, might be just simply being willing to open your home so that you can help shelter somebody for a season of time or take from what you have to give to someone else in their time of need. Um, Usually in the Bible, it was a reference to uh, an instruction to being kind to strangers. It was a reference to being hospitable to people that you don't know, people that are not from here or that aren't, that you don't normally see. Uh, It's the kind of characteristic that you see with the Good Samaritan on the side of the road when he saw somebody in great need and he helped him out and then he took him in and he provided for that person uh, and for their well-being. That was a form of hospitality. Uh, in the Greco-Roman culture in Greece, um, they actually considered hospitality a virtue. Uh, they actually believed that Zeus was the avenger of all who were inhospitable. So hospitality was, in their culture, was a really uh, um, valuable quality, and they wanted to hold on to that. A virtue was, uh, was uh, it was a virtue to be hospitable, and um, the people already kind of valued this hospitality, but Peter is taking, taking from that concept, and, and God is using Peter to encourage the church that this should be characteristic of all believers who love not only strangers, but especially brothers and sisters in Christ. And in this context, he's not saying to just simply show hospitality to all people of the world, but he's specifically saying to the brothers and sisters of Christ. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. And because this is written to the church, the one another there is a reference to Christians, to believers, to you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's telling us to make sure that we are hospitable to one another without complaint. Also, in that culture, if you were to uh, put somebody out or to leave somebody without helping them, it was to put them in harm's way, and that was considered to be really dishonorable and ungodly thing to do, uh, especially within the church. Um, as I was reading, I came across this guy. I don't know if he's a theologian or what, some guy named Donald Coggin. I don't know that guy, 
but he said this. I thought it was kind of an interesting thing that he said. He said, true hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish that they were at home. I thought that was a really good, really good way of putting it. Making people feel at home when you wish that they were at home. All right. But, you know, and let's face it, there are times when you're helping somebody and you feel like there's got to be a limit to this, you know. But um, there is uh, there's this hospitality that we're encouraged to have is interesting because it's partnered with this idea of being without complaint. It's without complaint. There's no grumbling. It's it is a, it's an extension of love that's an honest love. You're not telling somebody you're welcome to stay in my house all the while deep within your heart. You're saying, I really wish you would get out of my house. You know, um, that is not characteristic. Although I will say, let's be, we, we have feelings where it's, it's difficult sometimes. It, every, every time you extend hospitality to anybody, it's going to affect us and it's going to be hard. If you take from what you have to give to somebody else, there's going to be an empty spot where you took from what you had, right? Whether it's from your food pantry or whether it's uh, a spot in your house that used to be vacant where you now have somebody sleeping. Um, it could be uh, anything. Any form of hospitality is going to be a form of a sacrifice, and it's going to hurt sometimes. But the Lord's calling us to be honest in that love and to extend it toward one, or, one another, especially towards our Christian family. And that's one of the things that I think is beautiful about our fellowship is the our ability to love one another um, by getting to know one another. And that's one of the values of our community groups because we're able to see each other face to face, listen to each other's prayer requests, and through that we find out each other's needs. And then, and, and then the Lord prompts us to help meet one another's needs. And those have been some of the most beautiful testimonies to witness as a part of a body of Christ, is seeing God meet my needs through my brothers and sisters in Christ, through my Christian family. Um, and that, that is a beautiful thing. It, it's the Spirit of God placing hospitality in the heart of my family. And as a result, I am being richly blessed. And then as a result, I am being led to richly bless others as well. And that's such a beautiful thing to experience and to see. Um, also, it's good to be reminded in our sharing of hospitality that this comes in the context of being, of remembering that the end of all things is near. You know, sometimes when you're sharing, you know, being hospitable, you kind of wonder, is there going to be an end to this? And Jesus reminds us that, don't worry, the, the end of the age is coming. We don't know when that's going to be. You know, it's been 2,000 years since these guys heard this, right? So, um, so we don't know. It could be another 1,000 years before... Uh, you know, the end of the age is near. But, you know, our life is still pretty short, you know, uh, somewhere less. We're somewhere less than 120 years, probably. All right. Uh, for most of us in here. So, um, you know, the end is coming. So I believe that God has given within our hearts the ability to give a fervent, consistent and honest love until Jesus comes back, if that's what's necessary. Um, God has given that to us. Now, before I wade into all the rest of these verses, I'm just going to read them. I kind of want to land in one spot in verse 11 today. He says, whoever speaks is to do so, or um, verse 10, he says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so 
as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I just want to land on that phrase to today, and we'll come back to the rest of this next week, so that in all things God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. It is, these instructions are for the purpose of God being glorified through the church. And that should be our, our heart and our desire, that the glory of God be seen by the world. And the church is a small representation of the kingdom of God. We ought to reflect the character of Christ. We ought to reflect the character of God who has extended his fervent love to us and his hospitality to us and his forgiveness, and his mercy, and his grace, we ought to extend that to one another. So a few of the instructions that we've been given here is to remember that the end of the age is near. Be of sound judgment and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Keep fervent in your love for one another, and be hospitable to one another without complaint. I would like to encourage us to all pray through these things as we try to apply, continue to apply those in our church fellowship and in our relationships with everyone around us. I would also like to remind you, too, that these things that are being encouraged in Scripture, these are not laws. These are instructions. These are instructions, but these are, these are things that will come as fruits of the Holy Spirit through us, meaning that we could, we could make some laws here saying that there's... Um, that whenever somebody needs something, that, um, that we should give everything if we have to. And I believe that the Lord has called us to be led by the Spirit to give as much as He calls us to give. And we trust the Lord to provide in our need. But I do believe that there are times when God causes us to have boundaries. And it's important to remember that it's okay to have some boundaries and to communicate those as we go along. Uh, and the Spirit of God helps us to navigate where those are going to be so that we can show compassion in those and give above and beyond what is reasonable because we know that it is God who takes care of us and provides for us. Um, but we ultimately trust that it is God who's being glorified in us. And if we must sacrifice a lot, we know that God is carrying us through it, ultimately all for His glory. I'd like to conclude by reading Psalm 133. I think I was supposed to put a mark in there, and I did not. Psalm 133 said this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.